Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into the mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor. I'm happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. We're doing the work we need to do to heal self and world at the same time. We pick up here with our contemplation of the Buddha molecule, DMT and the soul of visionary love wisdom. We're thinking about how to work with the medicines of our world, including psychedelic medicines. They've become increasingly accepted, and they have a lot of potential. You could say not just accepted, but there's a lot of excitement, interest, buzz. And it's they're almost a, a little too popular. I mean, anything like this has a danger of being trivialized and co-opted into the pattern of insanity. Now, some people have experienced what they feel are deep transformation and healing with these medicines. Nevertheless, the medicines come with a variety of risks, some rather obvious, some quite subtle. And you might have seen some... Uh, there was a, There's a podcast out there that is looking at... Uh, uh, some of the dangers in particular with the PTSD experiments. And there are other podcasts and news items that you can read that give us some fair warning and concern. As with so many things in our lives, we have to confront our philosophy of psychedelics. We cannot work with psychedelics in the absence of a philosophy because philosophy is simply how we do things. Wisdom means our way of doing things shows skill and insight. Wisdom is what truly works without creating further problems. Sometimes we don't always see those problems. Sometimes they're hidden. They appear somewhere else in the ecology or in someone else's ecology altogether, relatively speaking. When it comes to philosophy or love wisdom, the only question we can have in our lives and in any activity is whether we have a sufficiently skillful and holistic philosophy or whether we have something ultimately fragmented and fragmenting. And I say ultimately because we may not see it at first, either because we haven't engaged in enough critical thinking or we haven't done all the work we need to look at the total consequences of our activity. In our last contemplation, we tried to begin to sense the ways in which Buddhist philosophy has a clear place for some of the phenomena of psychedelic experiences, things like interacting with non-human entities, entering different dimensions of reality, and in general, manifesting mind. In this contemplation, we'll go a little deeper into the meaning of the Buddha molecule and the soul of visionary love wisdom, so that we can sense a little better how Buddhist philosophy, in particular, offers us an exceptional support for working with psychedelics and other medicines of our world. And that's important to keep in mind. This is not necessarily about psychedelics. The principles are the same, and we are looking really at just the subtle and profound magic that's in the wisdom traditions of the world. And we're just taking this example of Buddhist philosophy. We'll have just a little more of the bigger picture, I think, and then 
In a final contemplation, we'll look at the most essential practices that I as a philosopher might recommend for anyone seeking insight and healing, no matter what kind of medicine they work with. And really, we'll be talking about what brings true peace and joy, true wisdom, love, and beauty into our lives and our world. Now, let's make something clear. When I say we're going to talk about the bigger picture, the present contemplation is not about abstractions. As I always have to remind people, philosophy reveals that we are living a bunch of abstractions, and it tries to correct that, tries to get us more concrete and real. Among other things, we want to try to understand why we need a holistic philosophy of life informing our work with any of the medicines of our world. And part of what a holistic philosophy provides are the kind of basic image of reality that we're trying to outline here. The big picture visions and suggestions we make here have the most concrete and practical consequences in our everyday lives and in the work we do with any of the medicines of our world. In this contemplation, I think maybe we could begin with the term psychedelic. Now, many of us know psychedelic means mind-manifesting. It's a Greek uh, conglomerate, psyche and delos. Mind-manifesting, or that which shows the mind, or even that which makes the mind real could be another way to get at what the root means. The psyche in psychedelic is the soul, and also the nature of mind. So psychology is supposed to be the study of the mind. But so far, we owe more to philosophy than to psychology as far as understanding and skillfully working with our minds. Psyche means both mind and soul. In other words, it indicates life force and life essence. It carries that connotation. And the delos part, in psychedelos, psychedelic, delos means visible and clear. That means psychedelics can clarify the soul, clarify the mind. The proto-Indo-European root of delos indicates shining or radiance. So a psychedelic medicine reveals the radiance of the soul. Many people know at least the basic idea that psychedelic means mind-manifesting. Now, you might not have thought about all those nuances. Maybe you, you never talked about it with anyone or looked it up, and that's all fine. And maybe not very many people know how we got the term psychedelic. And it's a helpful reflection. I mean, it may make sense. It may fit. You think, oh, I, I think I know what that means. But where did it come from? Well, we owe the term psychedelic to Dr. Humphrey Osmond, a psychiatrist. Way back in 1957, he published a paper called A Review of the Clinical Effects of Psychotomimetic Agents. That's a mouthful. What are psychotomimetic agents? Well, they would include DMT, LSD, and many other medicines. Why were they called psychotomimetic? Because people thought that these medicines mainly mimic psychosis. In other words, a mental breakdown. The value of the medicines was thought to be potentially confined to helping us understand schizophrenia and other cases of psychic breakdown. 
But Osmond argued that we shouldn't see this as the only thing and definitely not the most important thing these medicines do. He thought they had much more potential for us and that mental health professionals should work with them. He also takes time in that paper to acknowledge the debt we owe to our indigenous ancestors who courageously sought out and experimented with these medicines. It's bold experimentation when you're not sure what's going to happen. So there's a, a long scientific tradition. Dominant culture likes to parade this word science around like we invented it. Now, Osman, of course, mentions indigenous peoples from Africa, the Americas, and so on, but we should keep in mind that all of us have a lineage that goes back to an indigenous people. Our own ancestors probably worked with these medicines because they weren't, weren't marginalized in many indigenous cultures. They, they were more centralized. In the Greek tradition, this is almost certainly so. And that tradition influenced the whole of the dominant culture. So you see, something that was important to the Greeks really got buried, and there's probably a reason for that. And we should keep in mind that the dominant culture doesn't just have roots in the Hebrew Bible. That's not the only source of the structures of our culture, good and bad. But we also have roots in ancient Greece. In any case, wherever our ancestors come from, if we go back far enough, we'll find an indigenous people who probably worked with a variety of states of consciousness and a variety of ways of realizing those states of consciousness. But now the dominant culture narrows the states of consciousness we commonly have access to, and those states that we have access to are not conducive to wisdom, love, and beauty in the fullest sense. So our experience is being constrained and controlled, and no one has to sit around in a room and plot this. It just goes together with the culture. The mention of indigenous traditions is not a side branch, but integral to the main stock or the main trunk of the tree of wisdom. And one of the problems we face right now is that too few people work with psychedelics in accord with a sincere intention to re-indigenize themselves and their culture. Now, we would need some statistical data on that, some interviews and counting and numbers. It just doesn't seem to be the case. We certainly haven't revitalized the culture just yet. And we'll discuss the problem of intention a little bit more in our next contemplation, because that would be one of the essential things that, as a philosopher, I would recommend we work with, to notice that there's a problem of intention, what it means, what it is, and, and what its role would be in working with these medicines or any medicine. But at, le at the very least, I think we need to consider the ways psychedelic medicines have gotten co-opted into the self-help catastrophe. And we mentioned that a little bit last time. The co-opting means many of the people working with these medicines mainly do so in a manner that extracts from ecologies where they do not live. That's not a universal fact, but it's a matter of the apparent majority of the activity. Again, we need careful counting process, but if you consult your personal experience and the people that, who you know and hear about working with these medicines, I think you might sense that. So, for instance, most of us don't live in a place where ayahuasca and chacruna grow, or chakrapanga, the vine and leaf. We don't live where the vine and leaf grow, most of us. 
in the dominant culture, and so we have to go to somebody else's ecology, or we have to extract it in some other way. And so maybe we have someone do the extraction on our behalf, and then it, it's shipped to us. We have the medicine sent to us. Now, whether we go ourselves or we have the medicine shipped, we're consuming from ecologies we don't belong to, and we don't tend to give back to them in any significant way. But commonly, for, for instance, people go to Peru or some other place for an ayahuasca vacation. might be other places, Costa Rica, wherever. They don't tend to go to Peru. It doesn't seem to be that people are saying, well, I, I went to Peru principally to save and to serve the rainforest and to serve the people there. And then in my spare time, or during some special sacred time, we had an ayahuasca ritual. That's not usually the storyline that we get. We usually get that the person went to Peru with the intention to take ayahuasca, not with the intention to re-indigenize themselves and their culture and to make sure that these ecologies were being deeply served. So people will hop on a plane, fly thousands of miles, take ayahuasca and leave. And maybe they spend some time there practicing uh, dieta, spending money in villages and so on, and we've developed now a dependence in some of these locations, on that activity, unfortunately. There wasn't a dependence there before ayahuasca tourism, and now there is one. And so people, uh, when they're spending time there, though, that means they're eating these people's food, they're drinking the water, they're using all manner of resources, and of course they're leaving a lot of waste, which is not necessarily composted and so on, taken care of, and they burn a huge amount of fossil fuels to get down there and back. And again, it could be thousands of miles. And when they return home, they may return to a job that mostly, on balance, extracts from ecologies all over the world rather than repairing them. So there's all kinds of karma being created, including ecological degradation. And all that karma goes into this ayahuasca experience and becomes part of its effects in the world we share. Now, there are other medicines. Maybe some are more ecological problematic uh, than others. We could sit around and think about all that. It's just to at least begin to recognize. Now, these generalizations have exceptions, too, of course. And one thing is, it seems that many people working with psychedelics can experience, at least possibility, of experiencing some kind of increased ecological sensitivity. In some way or other, they may feel more connected to Earth, but we don't always know what that means, especially, again, outside of abstractions in concrete terms. One thing we don't know is how often this arises as a selection effect rather than uh, an experience or training effect. In other words, a person already open to working with an earth medicine, if you're the kind of person who, who is open to working with, say, ayahuasca or peyote, you might already be the kind of person who's prone to feeling more connected to the earth after those experiences. Because plenty of people wouldn't countenance doing that, right? And maybe those people... Um, wouldn't have the same kind of experience of openness or connection to the earth. Maybe they would. But there too, if someone was quite disconnected from ecological reality, they might feel very significantly transformed, but that might be relative to where they started. So it might seem like a real big deal to them, but it might not be a big deal to the earth in terms of how they then go on to live their lives. So how, whatever our experience with it, we're not sure whether we're, we're transforming our culture and really living in a way that is helpful to ecologies, the ecologies we all depend on rather than harmful to them. In any case, we can imagine what we don't know, again, is just how much 
any given person who works with psychedelic medicines will go on to increase their own eco-fluency and the eco-fluency of their culture. And we need attunement with ecological and spiritual realities in a way that sees them as unified rather than two separate things. And this is all part of re-indigenization, which means truly honoring our own indigenous ancestors and simultaneously honoring indigenous peoples alive today, who really, if you look at biodiversity hotspots around the world, it's my understanding that the majority of them are being taken care of by indigenous people. And that's really significant to contemplate, that they've been trying to take care of ecologies while conquest consciousness has been very busy degrading them. And so all this taken together means healing a great deal of inherited karma on all sides. Okay, let's return to Osman in this paper from way back in 1957. Now, in defining psychotomimetics, remember, that which mimics psychosis, that's what these medicines were called, in defining psychotomimetics, Osman wanted to distinguish them from a lot of other substances people could argue or debate over. You know, should this be included, should it not? But Osman recognized that many drugs produce significant changes in our bodies and minds, and he felt it important to exclude things like anesthetics, hypnotics, alcohol, and all derivatives of morphine, atropine, and cocaine from this group of medicines that we now refer to as psychedelics. So we can argue about that, but he wanted them those substances excluded. Although he said our definition of the medicines he wished to include would change as we learned more about them and learn more about ourselves, he suggested that we define them as, quote, and here's the definition, substances that produce changes in thought, perception, mood, and sometimes posture, occurring alone or in concert without causing either major disturbances of the autonomic nervous system or addictive craving, and although with overdosage, disorientation, memory disturbance, stupor, and even narcosis may occur, these reactions are not characteristic. End quote. That's Osmond's definition of psychedelics. The main point he seemed to want to make is that, as he put it, quote, if mimicking mental illness were the main characteristics of these agents, psychotomimetics would indeed be a suitable generic term. It is true that they do so, but they do much more, end quote. So it's interesting that he's, he's, he is giving this, you know, and we could talk more about what is the difference between en enlightenment and madness. It's an important question. It's more subtle than we might want to, we might want to, to romanticize or fantasize about it. But at any rate, he's acknowledging that much. And then he asks the following question. He asks, quote, Why are we always preoccupied with the pathological, the negative, 
Is good merely the absence of evil? Is pathology the only yardstick? Must we mimic Freud's gloomier moods that persuaded him that a happy man is a self-deceiver evading the heartache for which there is no anodyne? Is not a child infinitely potential rather than polymorphously perverse? It's a nice little turn of phrase. Um, A lot of alliteration. I had to do a very careful job reading that. And in in this spirit of trying to touch the positivity, he considered several names for these medicines to help us see them as capable of enriching our minds and enlarging our vision. And here are the ones he considered. It's an entertaining list. He considered psychophoric, psychihormic, psychiplastic, psychizymic, psycholytic, psychorhexic, and finally psychedelic. Now, he liked that last one the best, and that is the one that stuck. But the other ones have interesting meanings, if you recognize the etymologies, and I pronounce them sort of not smoothly, but to try to make that break. And going over that list again, what we had was mind-moving, mind-provoking, mind-transforming, mind-fermenting, mind-releasing, that's nice, mind-releasing, and mind-bursting forth. I kind of like that one, too. I know it doesn't sound great. (laughs) <laughs> psychorhexic, but, um, but I like the, the meaning of the etymology. And then finally, we have mind manifesting or mind clarifying or mind radiance. Osman's paper is worth reading. It's not that long. And a couple more things he wrote should stay with us in this context. So I'll just read you a couple more things. First of all, he wrote, quote, So far as I can judge, Spontaneous experience of the kind we are discussing has always been infrequent, and the techniques for developing it are often faulty, uncertain, clumsy, objectionable, and even dangerous. I like that quote a lot, because that's the vibe we're working with in our contemplation together. We are turning to Buddhist philosophy, Buddhist love wisdom, precisely to address this issue. Buddhist love wisdom can help us become consistent, skillful, clear, precise, graceful, ethical, and genuinely helpful to ourselves and the world we share, including our work with the medicines of this world, medicines of any kind. Now then Osman writes the following, quote, I believe that the psychedelics provide a chance, perhaps only a slender one, for homo faber, the cunning, ruthless, foolhardy, pleasure-greedy tool-maker, to merge into that other creature, whose presence we have so rashly presumed, namely homo sapiens, the wise, the understanding, the compassionate, in whose fourfold vision art, politics, science, and religion are one. Surely we must seize that chance. Oh, that's such a nice passage. How he invites us to unite art, science, religion, and politics is a very indigenous view. 
what a miraculous vision we would need. And I really love this play with Homo Faber, the maker. You know, this we're we have an obsession with technology right now, doing and making. And we could talk a lot about that because I think there's an encumbered archetype at work there. Of course, we have many encumbered archetypes at work in our culture, but this shift from Homo Faber to Homo sapiens. We know how to make a lot of stuff. We are making ourselves into oblivion. We're not making the world. Only wisdom can do that. That's how the world made itself. So this is really, I think, a wonderful passage that he wrote. It's uh, just delightful. And it also points us toward the subtitle of these contemplations, because we'd need a miraculous vision to unite art, science, religion, and politics. That would be a miraculous vision, wouldn't it? Especially on Turtle Island. And the full title of our contemplation is The Buddha Molecule, DMT, and the Soul of Visionary Love Wisdom. We're trying to get at what even a dominant culture psychiatrist saw as profoundly important and urgent. In other words, it's like a spiritual emergency. And so then, isn't that a nice play on psychotomimetic? Because if we're in a spiritual emergency, it might look a whole lot like psychosis, and if we don't navigate it right, it could end that way. Okay, now I promised only one final bit from Osman because it was pretty spot on. And remember, this was written in 1957 by a person who seems to have worked with these medicines. There's some hints. He seems to be talking about his own experience. And now this is a little longer passage, so stay with me, and I'll let you know when we come to the end, and then I promise we'll be done with this article. But it is interesting, isn't it? So Osman wrote, quote, The mystic and the scientist have the same recipe for those who seek truth. Perhaps, if we can follow that recipe, we shall learn how to rebuild our world in another and better image. For our extraordinary technical virtuosity is forcing change on us whether we like it or not. Our old faults, however, persisting in our new edifice, are far more dangerous to us than they were in the old structure. The old world perishes, and unless we are to perish in its ruins, we must leave our old assumptions to die with it. While we are learning, we may hope that dogmatic religion and authoritarian science will keep away from each other's throats. We need not shout down the voice of the mystic because we cannot hear it, or force our rationalizations on them for our own reassurance. Few of us can accept or understand the mind that emerges from these studies. Kant once said of Swedenborg, Philosophy is often much embarrassed when she encounters certain facts she dare not doubt, yet will not believe for fear of ridicule. Sixty years ago, orthodox physicists knew that the atom was incompressible and indivisible. Only a few cranks doubted this. Yet who believes in the billiard ball atom now? In a few years, I expect, the psychedelics that I have mentioned will seem as crude 
as our ways of using them. Yet even though many of them are gleanings from Stone Age peoples, they can enlarge our experience greatly. Whether we employ these substances for good or ill, whether we use them with skill and deftness or with blundering ineptitude, depends not a little on the courage, intelligence, and humanity of many of us who are working in the field today. That's the end of the quote. A little bit begrudgingly, I left in the bit from Kant, the quote from Kant, because it goes, uh, goes together with the reference to Swedenborg and Osman's recognition that, as he put it, few of us can accept or understand the mind that emerges or manifests from the study of psychedelic medicines. That's really a nice line. But Kant speaks foolishly here, projecting his narrow mind onto Sophia. I think that should be considered sacrilegious talk. Philosophy is not embarrassed by anomalous data. Rather, the true philosopher is always drawn there. The anomalous is Sophia calling to us. So, don't bother reading Kant. That's always my advice to people in the dominant culture. Oh, sure, he's a genius. But I think he w he's a professor. Now, the point of considering together this long passage is to bring home what the man who gave us the term psychedelics saw as the potential and calling of these medicines. It's not that he's the first and the last word on them, but that he made some insightful suggestions from within the dominant culture. And what we're trying to see here is that Buddhist philosophy itself is psychedelic. It causes the mind to become manifest to us, to become clear, to burst forth, to release, to reveal its inherent radiance. And thus the kind of mind that emerges in these studies of psychedelics is in fact accepted and to some profound degree understood within the Buddhist philosophical traditions. And everything that he's saying in, the, in that passage I just read you then applies this idea that, that our efforts might one day seem crude to us. Well, in 2,600 years of psychedelic investigation by means of Buddhist practices, I think psychedelics to some degree do seem crude from the perspective of the most advanced practices in those traditions. And the recipe that Buddhist philosophy gives us is indeed a, a, a quite a scientific recipe for finding the truth about what we are and what the mind is and so on and so on. So you can play back that passage and everything that we're trying to get at is in, at least hinted in there, I think, to some degree. And certainly all the passages from Osman together, they really get at what we're trying to get at. What we may never fully understand by means of conventional psychedelic medicines and our typical use of them, the great Buddhist philosophers understood by direct inquiry and experience using the psychedelic medicine of Buddhist philosophy itself. We're talking about incredible psychonauts who journeyed into the vast space of the mind, the vast space of the soul, 
using only the techniques of meditation. Many of those techniques remain unknown to most people in the dominant culture. They've got no idea that, it, it, that those techniques exist or that they would be associated with Buddhist philosophy. And remember, again, in our last contemplation, we talked about Buddha saying that he didn't think that people would believe that psychic powers and psychic experiences and these sorts of, we could say, supernatural phenomena, the phenomena that exhibit the superness of nature, that are not unnatural, but they are part of nature, but they're part of nature's superness. And he was saying that those kinds of phenomena people would dismiss that they could come from the practice of philosophy. They, he, he suggested that people would believe that someone would have to take an herb or use some magical amulet in order to have the kinds of experiences that Buddhist meditators have. So even 2,600 years ago, Buddha recognized that he was in a realm most people w couldn't even fathom. And all of this together means that Buddhist philosophy provides skillful concepts and practices for helping us to rejuvenate our world in the manner Osman suggests we must, if we will avoid catastrophe. And, of course, we have only gone further into danger since 1957. We seem to need to up our game, so to speak. And good philosophy, wherever we find it, doesn't have to be from the Buddhist tradition. That's not what matters. What matters is we have a holistic, ethical, skillful philosophy of life. And that will become a great medicine for us all. Good philosophy can empower our work with all the medicines of the world, including psychedelics. And I would include my own lineage here, the Greeks, because Plato worked with these medicines. It's almost certain that he did. He certainly was aware of them, and he presented his school of philosophy really as a corrective. That's my view, is that Plato's academy, you could say in some ways one of the earliest schools in the dominant culture, one of the earliest universities, it's a kind of more subtle affair than that, but his academy, I think, was for him a corrective to the ways he saw the medicines of ancient Greece being co-opted by conquest consciousness. And so there's a way in which love wisdom, philosophy, is as we know it. Because I always agree with uh, Whitehead that the history of dominant culture philosophy is footnotes to Plato. Some of the footnotes are insane. But some of the footnotes are pretty darn good. And at any rate, the point is that Plato is this giant figure in the dominant culture, and the very initiative for his school was in one way or another influenced by these psychedelic medicines. And I think he too was saying we need to go beyond those medicines, at least go beyond the ways they're being co-opted. Because I'm, I'm definitely not against working with these medicines skillfully. We're talking about all the medicines of the world. And how can we work with them skillfully and work with reality? Apropos of Osman's definition of psychedelics, we can note that the stories we open with in our last contemplation illustrate that the practice of Buddhist philosophy alters our thought, perception, mood, and posture in ways that include the most expansive and positive potentials Dr. Osman had in mind when he coined the term psychedelic. And so to say it again, Buddhist philosophy is itself a psychedelic. This is not accidental, but rather its explicit aim, which is to 
make the true nature of our mind and reality manifest to us, to allow the radiance of the mind to shine forth. And moreover, Buddha himself is a psychedelic because his very presence is able to manifest the nature of mind and reality. And we can see this, for instance, in the Vimalakirti Sutra. In that teaching, Buddha talks about the establishment of Buddha fields. That's kind of the, the early part of the, the sutra. And a Buddha field is a field in the sense of a magnetic field or a gravitational field, and also it's a field in the sense of a place where things grow, like a field of, of uh, grasses. And a Buddha field means a mandala, of spiritual awakening or an ecology of insight, an ecology of practice and realization, an ecology of enlightenment. And awakening beings make these fields of awakening in that double sense that it's, it's magnetizing people to begin to wake up and it's also the place where, where their spiritual growth is happening. Well, these beings are growing like living organisms in this field of awakening. And the fields of awakening are made by awakening beings to help all beings to become enlightened. So in other words, they create the set and setting. And they also offer the medicine that will help our mind to manifest and burst forth. And they do this on a galactic and even intergalactic scale. Now, in the Vimalakirti Sutra, there, a psychedelic scene unfolds, and actually several psychedelic scenes unfold, because this is a pretty wild and magical sutra. We're not going to go into all of it, but at the beginning, the psychedelic scene we have in mind is the teaching opens with Buddha surrounded by hundreds of thousands of beings. So there's a lot of vastness in some of these sutras. And 500 of them come up to him. Each one is carrying a precious jeweled parasol, umbrella, and they lay it before him. And after all 500 par parasols were laid down, the Buddha causes them to become transformed into a single incredible canopy. And it's just hovering above everybody. And in that massive canopy, our entire universe appeared so that people could see limitless abodes of suns, moons, stars, and many dimensions of reality. They saw mountains, rivers, and many diverse ecologies. And they heard the voices of all the Buddhas in every direction in the multiverse, in the cosmos, teaching philosophy in all the worlds of the cosmos. And so naturally, everyone felt ecstatic. And after this psychedelic display, so it affected their mood and perception and thought, you see, after this psychedelic display, Buddha goes on to talk about Buddha fields and then as he's talking about them, his right-hand man, Shariputra, thinks the following thought. He thinks, if the Buddha field is pure only to the extent that the mind of the awakening being is pure, then whenever Shakyamuni Buddha, our Buddha, our teacher, when he was engaged in the work of an awakening being, his mind must have been very impure. Otherwise, how could this Buddha field appear to be so impure? So this is pretty hilarious. I know it's muted Buddhist humor, but it would be like one of the Christian apostles thinking to himself, well, God must have a pretty impure mind because this place is a dump. You know, <laughs> just imagine if that's in one of the Gospels and then Jesus 
says, well, hey there, Luke, what, what are you thinking? And so Buddha could read Shariputra's mind. And so that's what he said. He said, what do you think, Shariputra? Is it because the sun and moon are impure that those blind from birth don't see them? And Shariputra replied, no, Buddha, the fault lies with those blind from birth and not with the sun and moon. And then Brahma spoke up, and you might remember Brahma from our last contemplation, the god Brahma. There are many Brahmas because there are many universes within the cosmos. The Buddhist vision is of a multiverse, vast, vast, and this is, of course, way before we had that idea. Although there might have been people in the dominant culture who speculated such things, but this is the Buddhist vision that there's a vast multiverse of many universes. And this Brahma was, this particular Brahma, he was known as Brahma Sikin, and he said to Shariputra, Reverend Shariputra, do not say that the Buddha field of the Buddha is impure. The Buddha field of the Buddha is pure. I see the splendid expanse of the Buddha field of Shakyamuni Buddha as equal to the splendor of, for example, the abodes of the highest deities. And they're saying Shakyamuni Buddha because there are many Buddhas. And so then Shariputra said to this particular Brahma, he said, well, as far as I'm concerned, O Brahma, I see this great earth with its highs and lows, its thorns, its precipices, its peaks and its abysses, as if it were entirely filled with excrement. Now, that's pretty funny in front of your teacher, who is, was just saying that basically in a cosmic way, he was responsible for helping to create the world around you, not in a divinity way, but that this is what Buddhas do. Because remember, Buddha, we're just like Buddhas. And so even Brahma, who is a god, isn't really... A creator like Buddhas are creators. And so here's Shariputra saying, I think it's all filled with excrement. And Brahma Sikhin gives him a great reply. Brahma says, The fact that you see such a Buddha field as this, as if it were so impure, Reverend Shariputra, is a sure sign that there are highs and lows in your mind, and that your positive thought in regard to the Buddha Gnosis, or that would be Buddha knowledge, but a special kind of knowledge, your positive thought in regard to the Buddha Gnosis is not pure either. Reverend Shariputra, those whose minds are impartial toward all living beings and whose positive thoughts toward the Buddha Gnosis are pure, see this Buddha field as perfectly pure. Now that's already a pretty good teaching for someone working with psychedelics because our attitude is going to affect what we see and so will our intentions and so on. So we need mind training. In other words, in order, that will determine what we see. But then, even though that was a great response, Buddha took matters into his own psychedelic hands, or in this case, his psychedelic feet. And he touched the ground, not only of our Earth, but of our billion-world galactic universe, or cosmos. He touched that ground with his big toe, just his big toe, he touches the ground, and suddenly... The entire world was transformed into a huge mass of precious jewels, a magnificent array of many hundreds of thousands of clusters of precious gems, and it was all luminous and magnificent, and everyone in the entire assembly of hundreds of thousands was filled with wonder, each perceiving themselves seated on a throne of jeweled lotuses. What a trip! They, they suddenly were on. They looked down, they're all sitting on jeweled lotus thrones, and everything is luminous and incredible and alive and awake. And then Buddha said to Shariputra, 
Well, Shariputra, do you see this splendor of the virtues of the Buddha field? And Shariputra replied, I see it, Buddha. Here before me is a display of splendor such as I never before even heard of, let alone beheld. And that's adapted from Robert Thurman's translation, which is the one I think that's worth reading. Uh, Burton Watson did a nice one too. It's from the Chinese text though. And uh, Robert Thurman's work is really always reliable, and I admire him a lot. But in this passage, we get a clear feel for Buddha as a psychedelic agent. He touches his toe to the ground, and everyone experiences something profound, a bursting forth of the nature of their own mind and the nature of reality. We see that he has the capacity to alter our perception our posture, our mood, our thinking, and our understanding. That's most important. The medicine is always insight in the wisdom traditions. And so we're just using the definition of psychedelics given to us by the doctor who coined the term. And isn't, isn't it sweet that we can be psychedelics for each other? Buddha represents what we are. Again, we all are Buddha. It, it is our basic goodness, our basic sanity, our inherent creativity and magic, our inherent meaning and mystery. That's what Buddha represents, what we are inherently, even though we don't see it. But even in our slightly deluded way, we can become a good presence for people. We can become present for people we love in such a way that we positively alter their mood, their perception, their thinking, their understanding, even their posture, of course, in various ways. And we could do that for anybody, for people we love, people we, we don't even know, strangers. We can take care of each other and give each other a good journey, a healing and vitalizing experience of life. We can become present for our friends like that, and for our children, for strangers, for horses, for wolves, for mountains and rivers, for bees and flowers, for countless sentient beings, and for the whole world too. The earth would love for us to become good medicine, to touch our toes to her gently and see her as luminous. Now all of this can begin to deepen our appreciation for the ways Buddhist philosophy might serve as a most excellent resource for modeling, supporting, working with, and integrating psychedelic experiences. We need a lot more detail, and we could do many, many contemplations about this, but we're going to consider just a couple more reflections as far as what we could say is a, a bigger picture. Now first, let's acknowledge here at least one major figure in fairly recent Buddhist history, one who gives a luminous example, I love it's an important word here, it's coming to mind a lot, I guess. A luminous example of the ways Buddhist philosophy can skillfully receive experiences of the kind that arise with psychedelic medicines, including DMT. And again, we're partly doing this just to, to have a fresh vision. And there is some responsiveness to Rick Strassman's critique, because again, I respect Rick and I just want to try to give a different view. And so there's two things going on, just a general touching in with things that are important to any work we do with medicine and also just responding in particular to one one voice that has a lot of presence still in the psychedelic world. Now, the figure I have in mind here is, is Dujum Lingpa. That's the example we're going to consider of a kind of trippy figure, but a serious one. You know, he's not some wandering hippie, you know, hippy-dippy person. Dujum Lingpa lived from 1835 to 1904. 
And so his life doesn't feel as far away as the life of Buddha. This is not that long ago. And he stands out because he had no human teachers, none. He only received teachings from what we might call immaterial beings or spiritually advanced beings operating on a kind of cosmic scale. And we should emphasize the fact that many other Tibetan sages received teachings from these sorts of special beings, and that includes Tsongkhapa, who was one of the most influential figures in the whole history of Tibetan Buddhism and whose life and work were integral, fundamental to the establishment of the Dalai Lama lineage. But usually a Tibetan sage will also have had human teachers, as Tsongkhapa did. So even though he had very very significant uh, presence in his life of these kind of special beings, he also had human teachers. But Dujim Lingpa had only these special cosmic level teachers, whereas other sages, again, had a mix. all, all, All the rest had some humans. And so this special circumstances created a little skepticism about Dujim Lingpa at first. However, people began to look at Dujim Lingpa's students and they could clearly see that Dujim Lingpa must be an exceptional teacher. Why? Because he was altering the thought, perception, mood, posture, and so on of those beings. He was a psychedelic agent and he, they could see that he was transforming people around him. And this should stand out because in our context we can forget the importance of exceptional teachers. Exceptional teachers should produce exceptional students. And otherwise, the person might be exceptionally realized, but not realized enough that they've made it to being a good teacher. In the Buddhist tradition, you don't, you can't have one without the other. But I think we can look at the history of certain figures, especially, say, of the past hundred years, and we might see see some who said a lot of seemingly profound things, but not very many people woke up around them. So Dujim Lingpo had these visionary experiences and he recorded these visionary encounters with highly advanced spiritual beings. And those texts where he recorded these visionary encounters, those texts have become revered in Buddhist philosophy and they continue to serve as powerful and empowering teachings for students today. How many experiences with psychedelic medicines of the conventional sort result in that kind of positive effect? We're talking about sophisticated and profound teaching texts. In fact, they're sophisticated enough that we can't just pick them up and read them and think we're going to understand them. They require a teacher. As we said last time, the best books are over our heads. And that's where they help us to expand, to let go of, of ignorance and to see things that we truly just couldn't see before. That, that takes some work. So if we judge even this one example, according to Rick Strassman's own suggestions, we have to find Buddhist philosophy to perform exceptionally well because Dujim Lingpa experienced something aesthetically rich and also informationally rich. So these were profound visionary experiences, so they were aesthetically rich, but also informationally rich. His experience became transmuted into a message into a text, into something that could inform not only his own life, but the lives of others, and also the broader culture, and even the world. His works are venerated, and even just having a translation of, of his works in our home is considered positive and active presence, as if the text itself is a kind of Buddha field, an enlightenment vibration 
that opens our psyche. So that text is, is like a kind of psychedelic, and it w- works as a field. You can read it, and it might be even stronger, but just even having it around might be important. When Dujumlingpa died, get this one, I, this always blows my mind, the, the tradition accepted that he had split his mind stream into five. In other words, he didn't reincarnate as one person, or wasn't reborn as one person, but as five apparently different people. So those are they, are they are all his mind stream. And we can recall here from our last contemplation, way back in the Pali Canon, 2,600 years ago, that when Buddha talked about psychic powers, he included the power to go from manifesting as one to manifesting as many, and from manifesting as many to manifesting as one. And the tradition still accepts this, is what I'm trying to get at. The Dalai Lama is like this too, because he's an emanation of a cosmic-level enlightenment being called Avalokiteshvara. That's what he is. He's an emanation of this cosmic-level being. And that means that Avalokiteshvara went from being one to being many, because he is still active as Avalokiteshvara in addition to manifesting as the Dalai Lama. So imagine being the Dalai Lama. Now, he's certainly a very advanced spiritual practitioner, but the, to put the matter conservatively, he's most likely very advanced. I think it's pretty clear that he's exceptional. And even Western scientists see that and have admitted it, even very skeptical, hard-nosed ones. So most of us will never have that level of training and practice. But maybe he still doesn't feel like Avalokiteshvara. A lot of times in public, he says he doesn't. And so nevertheless, the tradition can, fu- can see him that way, and that would mean that Avalokiteshvara can emanate as a being that may not fully know itself as Avalokiteshvara, which is really trippy. It's a really trippy concept. You know, imagine that you're listening now and I tell you, you know what, you happen to be in a manifestation or emanation of Avalokiteshvara. And unless you had a grandiose ego, you would probably say, really? I don't feel like that. I don't feel like I have a cosmic vision necessarily. And so maybe the Dalai Lama doesn't, or maybe he does, but he doesn't want to create problems by saying that he does. Anyway, this kind of uh, possibility we have to understand, the reason I say that is uh, we, you or I might in particular not be manifestations like that, but, but people like us only differ on the basis of our practice and realization. So we're like these beings that we're reading about, or talking about here, if you're reading the text, but if you're, we're just talking about it together, we're like these beings. That's what this tradition is telling us, that we have this in us. And that reveals one of the central issues here. We've already touched on it. Buddha tells us that we are just like he is. And so Buddha is not trying to be above us. Buddha is trying to help us get to see that we are equal to him. And the only thing standing between us and enlightenment is our own ignorance. And the tradition is telling us that we can cut through that ignorance. It's not permanent, and it's not essential to us. Now, what happens when we cut through it? What is enlightenment like? Well, here we'll turn to our final example of the psychedelic character of Buddhist philosophy, and that's the Flower Garland Sutra, or the Flower Garland Scripture, or the Flower Ornament Scripture, or Avatamsaka Sutra. Now, this is hands down one of my favorite books of all time. It's just incredible. And it's a psychedelic encyclopedia of Buddhist love wisdom. It, it too, is not the kind of book we can just sit down and read. As we 
just mentioned. But I do still encourage you to try reading it because you, you can, you know, it's not like it's all gobbledygook. It's just you won't understand everything that you're reading, uh, even if you're a really bright person, because there, there's just a, a philosophical context that you won't get. It, it's like a people who are making inside jokes, but at the same time you follow the story. You understand the story, but maybe you didn't get all the inside little jokes. So you can open it randomly even, and you can just savor a page or two or three, and you might find it beginning to work on you, because the very text is psychedelic. It manifests mind and the nature of mind. And we just mentioned Robert Thurman, great American Buddhist philosopher. He even reported that he was reading this text and suddenly saw jeweled light emanating from it. He said, really, like really real light emanating from this text. Not not a hallucination, not something from his own eyes, but it was just emanating, you know, as if it were a sci-fi movie and you opened a book and just light came out. And I believe him as much as I would believe him if he reported the same thing after taking DMT. That's part of the premise that we're suggesting here. So fair warning, if you do try to read it or get a copy, it's about 1,500 pages long. It's not um, a cheap book. It's the kind of book that stays with you for your life, and you might read pages here and there, and you might st- study it even. I think Robert Thurman is giving uh, teachings on it, and it's very inexpensive to have access to, to them. So um, it's a beautiful book, though. So even though it's really big, it's expansive, and it's a magical expression of Buddhist love wisdom. It's not for everyone, but it's definitely worth reading at least some of it. You know, the philosopher D.T. Suzuki referred to it as, quote, the consummation of Buddhist thought, Buddhist sentiment, and Buddhist experience. The consummation of Buddhist thought, Buddhist sentiment, and Buddhist experience. He wrote that in this text, quote, not only deeply speculative minds find satisfaction, but humble spirits and heavily oppressed hearts, too, will find their burdens lightened. Abstract truths are so concretely, so symbolically represented here that one will finally come to a realization of the truth that even a particle of dust reflects the entire universe. Not this visible universe only, but a vast system of universes conceivable by the highest minds only. So that's D.T. Suzuki praising this text. I'll read you the opening paragraphs, which unfold as Buddha attains enlightenment here on earth. So picture this in your mind like a psychedelic experience, or the way you might imagine a psychedelic experience if you never worked with psychedelics. Those of you who have worked with them will notice how strongly this text resonates with a certain vibration of those experiences, if we can be a little loose with our words. So, okay, here we go. I'll let you know when we come to the end. It happened like this. At one time, the Buddha was in the land of Magadha, in a state of purity, at the sight of enlightenment, having just realized true awareness. The ground was solid and firm, made of diamond, adorned with exquisite jeweled disks and myriad precious flowers with pure, clear crystals. The ocean of characteristics of the various colors appeared over an infinite extent. There were banners of precious stones constantly emitting shining light 
and producing beautiful sounds, nets of myriad gems and garlands of exquisitely scented flowers hung all around. The finest jewels appeared spontaneously, raining inexhaustible quantities of gems and beautiful flowers all over the earth. There were rows of jeweled trees, their branches and foliage lustrous and luxuriant. By the Buddha's spiritual power, he caused all the adornments of this enlightenment site to be reflected therein. The tree of enlightenment was tall and outstanding. Its trunk was diamond. Its many boughs were lapis lazuli. Its branches and twigs were of various precious elements. The leaves spreading in all directions provided shade like clouds. The precious blossoms were of various colors. The branching twigs spread out their shadows. Also, the fruits were jewels containing a blazing radiance. They were together with the flowers in great arrays. The entire circumference of the tree emanated light. Within the light, there rained precious stones, and within each gem were enlightening beings in great hosts, like clouds simultaneously appearing. Also, by virtue of the awesome spiritual power of the Buddha, the tree of enlightenment constantly gave forth sublime sounds, speaking various truths without end. The palace chamber in which the Buddha was situated was spacious and beautifully adorned. It extended throughout the ten directions. It was made of jewels of various colors and was decorated with all kinds of precious flowers. The various adornments emanated lights like clouds. The masses of their reflections from within the palace formed banners. A boundless host of enlightening beings, the congregation at the site of enlightenment, were all gathered there. By means of the ability to manifest the lights and inconceivable sounds of the Buddhas, they fashioned nets of the finest jewels from which came forth all the realms of action of the spiritual powers of the Buddhas, and in which were reflected images of the abodes of all beings. Also, by virtue of the aid of the spiritual power of the Buddha, they embraced the entire cosmos in a single thought. Their lion's seats were high, wide, and beautiful. The bases were made of jewels, their nets of lotus blossoms, their tableaus of pure, exquisite gemstones. They were adorned with various flowers of all colors. Their roofs, chambers, steps, and doors were adorned by the images of all things. The branches and fruits of jewel trees surrounded them, arrayed at intervals. Clouds of radiance of jewels reflected each other. The Buddhas of the Ten Directions conjured regal pearls and the exquisite jewels in the topknots of all the enlightening beings all emanated light, which came and illuminated them. Furthermore, sustained by the spiritual power of all Buddhas, they expounded the vast perspective of the enlightened ones, their subtle tones extending afar, there being no place they did not reach. At that time, the Buddha... The world-honored one, in this setting, attained to supreme correct awareness of all things. His knowledge entered into all times with complete equanimity. His body filled all worlds. His voice 
universally accorded with all lands in the ten directions, like space which contains all forms, he made no discrimination among all objects. And, as space extends everywhere, he entered all lands with equanimity. His body forever sat omnipresent in all sights of enlightenment. Among the host of enlightening beings his awesome light shone clearly, like the sun emerging, illumining the world. The ocean of myriad virtues, which he practiced in all times, was thoroughly pure, and he constantly demonstrated the production of all the Buddha lands, their boundless forms and spheres of light extending throughout the entire cosmos, equally and impartially. He expounded all truths, like spreading great clouds. Each of his hair-tips was able to contain all worlds without interference, in each manifesting immeasurable spiritual powers, teaching and civilizing all sentient beings. His body extended throughout the ten directions, yet without coming or going. His knowledge entered into all forms and realized the emptiness of things. All the miraculous displays of the Buddhas of past, present, and future were all seen in his light, and all the adornments of inconceivable eons were revealed. There were great enlightening beings, numerous as the atoms in ten Buddha worlds surrounding him. Okay, now that's just the opening. The text gets better and better and in many ways wilder, trippier. And we can notice the fractal quality introduced here. The Buddha contains all worlds in each hair tip without them interfering with each other. So in fact we could look into each atom of his body and we would find a universe. That's what we will hear later in, in the sutra. Now this same kind of vision allows Buddha to be under the tree of enlightenment, but also in a palace that ex itself extends throughout the whole cosmos. So he's under the tree of enlightenment, and it's an ordinary tree, but then also everything is jeweled light, and it's a palace that extends to infinity. It's really trippy. We find here a reality comprised not of atoms, ultimately, but of something subatomic. We see a reality pervaded by a kind of luminous jewel plasma, Sometimes a diamond surface is firm, but sometimes the jewel energy here comes in the form of mists and clouds. You know, there are things that just don't go together. You have a, a banner, but the banner is made of stones, and the stones are raining other stones and gems and fragrances, and it's all interpenetrating and interwoven and inconceivable. And we can notice that when the Buddha realizes full enlightenment, he becomes present at all times and all places. But even though the text is very trippy and inconceivable, it's also filled with teachings. So it's not the textual equivalent of a cheap tie-dye shirt. These are teachings that can help us in our lives, and the images contain potential for transformative and healing insight. They're really powerful teachings in this book. As Suzuki said, this is, this is it. This is the consummation. And as I said, it's kind of like a psychedelic encyclopedia of Buddhist love wisdom. Let's consider another passage from the text. This one touches on how many kinds of beings and world systems or universes Buddhist love wisdom includes in its cosmic vision. And I, I select this one because some people have depicted ayahuasca, for instance, as a being, and there are other, other plant medicines or teachers are seen as beings. 
And for ayahuasca, it's as if she's a kind of goddess or bodhisattva. And the flower garland sutra, or flower ornament scripture, acknowledges the presence of many kinds of spirits, including herb spirits, each of whom has their special skill for helping to bring insight and inspiration and love and liberation to countless beings. So here's what the sutra says, quote, The herb spirit auspicious found the door of liberation, observing the mentalities of all sentient beings and striving to unify them. The herb spirit sandalwood forest found the door of liberation, embracing all sentient beings with light and causing those who see it not to waste the experience. The herb spirit pure light found the door of liberation able to annihilate the afflictions of all sentient beings by pure techniques. The herb spirit universal renown found the door of liberation able to increase the boundless ocean of good roots by means of a great reputation. The herb spirit radiant pores found the door of liberation hurrying to all sites of illness with the banner of great compassion. The herb spirit darkness-destroying purifier found the door of liberation able to cure all blind sentient beings and cause their eye of wisdom to be clear. And it goes on like this. Each one, these names, these are funny names, but that's the name of the spirit. One of the herb spirits is darkness-destroying purifier. And another herb spirit is called seeing in all directions. Another one is named banner of light outshining the sun. Another one is named everywhere emanating majestic light. So these are some of the herb spirits in the infinite cosmos. And maybe one of those is the Buddhist name for ayahuasca, or peyote, or even LSD. And there are probably as many herb spirits in the cosmos as there are atoms in our visible universe, by the scale that this sutra deals with. You, wouldn't, you won't believe the scale, because it's just incredible. And similarly, there are crop spirits, with names like gentle, superb flavor, and another one named increasing vitality. And there are forest spirits with names like Outstanding Trunk Unfolding Light. That's one of their names. Another one is named Auspicious Pure Leaves, not too surprising. Another one is called Draped Flame Treasury. And this is the vision that we get in the sutra. When you, you know, if we, if we look at, at this uh, sutra, it's kind of like if we look at, at Alex Gray's art, the artist Alex Gray, if you've, if you've seen the art of Alex Gray, and especially if you've seen that art and you also have had some exposure to psychedelic experiences, it's easy to sense the ways in which that art clearly reflects or expresses something about psychedelic experience. You, you see Alex Gray's art and you say, oh yeah, okay, yeah, that's DMT or that's LSD kind of experience. And the Flower Ornament Sutra is like that. The sutra gives us a marvelous vision of life in which everything around us calls us to awakening. Everything is a teaching and a portal to the great mystery. Everything arises as part of our awakening to reality. Now let's consider one more passage. In this passage we find a young person named uh, Sudhana, and Sudhana is on a spiritual pilgrimage, a walking pilgrimage. He doesn't get to hop on a jet, and he goes to, he's only there to go to a series of spiritual teachers. And it's not a spiritual buffet, but these are all teachers in, in really the same tradition. They're all Buddhist teachers, so he's very dedicated. And what this is, is it's a, a map of the inward journey. It's not telling us to go walking somewhere and try to find these teachers, but this is the map of the inward journey that we need to take. 
And Sudana meets up with a very advanced being named Gopa, and after paying his respects, he says to Gopa, I have set my mind on supreme perfect enlightenment, but I do not know how enlightening beings act in the midst of the mundane world without being stained by its ills, how they realize the equal essence of all phenomena without staying in the stage of personal liberation alone, how they manifest the qualities of Buddhas without stopping the practice of enlightening beings, how they remain in the stage of enlightening beings yet show the sphere of all Buddhas, how they transcend all worldly states yet act in the midst of worldly states, how they achieve the reality body yet produce endless physical manifestations. And it goes on and on talking about these incredible things that enlightening beings do. And enlightening beings are very advanced beings who are they're on their way to being Buddhas. And so he wants to be one of them. He wants to really be a real enlightening being, which means that he is dedicated to helping all beings become Buddhas. And so then Gopa gives him an explanation uh, of how he can follow this path. And as part of the explanation for how he can become an enlightening being, Gopa speaks the following words in verse. Those who set out for vast pure wisdom for the welfare of others and serve true benefactors honestly with tireless vigor, seeing them as teachers, carry out practice in the world like the cosmic net. Those whose devotion is vast as the sky, embracing all worlds of past, present, and future, all lands, beings, phenomena, and Buddhas, Theirs is this practice, producers of the light of knowledge. When the will is infinite as the sky, supremely pure, free from the taint of afflictions, therein arise the virtues of all Buddhas, concentrating the whole variety of the cosmic net of practice. The wise who rest on great oceans of virtue, inconceivable, infinite, vast as omniscience, as pure offspring of the body of all virtues, they act in the world unstained by the filth of the world. Those who listen to the teachings of Buddhas and tirelessly catch every nuance are lamps shining with wisdom in accord with truth. Theirs is this practice which lights the world. Those who perceive in an instant of awareness the infinite Buddhas everywhere, interrelated, contemplate the ocean of all Buddhas. This is the way into the mind of the enlightened. Those who see the vast audience of the Buddhas enter the ocean of their meditations and their infinite ocean of vows. This is the practice of those like the cosmic net. Those empowered by all the Buddhas practice universal good for endless ages, reflected in all lands. This is the practice of the lights of truth. Now it goes on from there, and I know that might have seemed a little long, but it's uh, this is a, an important little passage. It, we're stopping here at this place where the text acknowledges that our practice of life is reflected in the land. Our virtue appears in the land, and so do our vices. If we think about the world today, we can see our practice of life vividly reflected in all lands, all of them, all ecologies. And the other reason I chose this passage to share has to do with this mention of a cosmic net of practice. And what they, what this means, it's referring to the net of Indra that's, that's referenced in this text. The idea is that 
the net of Indra, we, when we read that opening passage, there was this vision of these beings bringing forth nets that are reflecting everything and bringing forth realms and so on, these magical nets. And so a net of Indra is a net where each gem reflects absolutely all of the other gems in it. It's a, it's a jeweled net. It's made of jewels. And these jewels are special jewels. If you were to look at any one, it's like you can imagine a net. It's, it's really empty, right? It's, a net is, is, uh, has this emptiness to it, but also is capturing things, right? And so the nets have like those little nodules, the knots, where the, where the nets tied together to create the mesh. And at each one of those little nodules, there's a jewel in the net of Indra. And when you look at that jewel, you see every other jewel in that jewel. So the the part contains the whole, is the idea. The entirety is in one little part. And the entirety in this sutra, again, is multiple universes. So it's a really holistic, incredibly holographic text, very fractal and holographic. And this person is saying that that this there's a cosmic net practice, that these these are beings these beings are like this cosmic net and their practice is a practice of a cosmic net like this. Because wisdom is skillful interwovenness. It's where we begin to really sense our interwovenness and we're practicing this inconceivable net of relationality that everything is just related and each little thing contains the whole so therefore Everything we do, every little moment, is the whole cosmos. We're making the whole cosmos. We're practicing the whole cosmos. And so a, a spiritually advanced being is one who practices this vast interwovenness of the cosmos moment to moment right where they stand because they know they're touching everything. So that's really an incredible feeling. This inconceivable interwovenness this fractal-like and holographic character of the cosmos as depicted in the Flower Garland Sutra, together with all the other fascinating contents, make this a surprisingly psychedelic text. When you open it up, you just can't believe something like this exists. You can't imagine how somebody composed something this complex, which, again, it's not just imagining some trippy stuff, but that this is deliberate and dense teaching that can help our lives. And so it's uh, to make the analogy, it falls a little short, but it's as if it's the text we would get if we had a whole army or team of Alex Grays engaged in writing rather than painting. But it's much more than that because this text comes from the experience of enlightenment. And I don't think he would claim that he's enlightened. So there's, there's something unbelievable that's here, that our mind is really not necessarily ready for but we can get some of it there's there's plenty that can begin to transform us because if it's like a psychedelic and we work with the medicine then it can begin to heal and transform us but we can come here to an important question given these kinds of resonance that we've evoked between psychedelics conventionally thought of things like LSD and ayahuasca and so on given the resonance between those medicines, and Buddhist philosophy, we might ask, well, can we use psychedelic medicines to become enlightened? If there are these similarities, will they help? And I think we could consider first a a deflationary suggestion. And I could say, as a philosopher, I don't think 
we can become enlightened using these medicines, certainly not without a holistic philosophical context, which may be in the cultures that have used these medicines that that might have existed. So at the very least, we would need a holistic philosophical context. But even then, as I think Osman was suggesting, in the end, maybe we always need to be able to find our fuller capacities without this apparent external medicine. It's just that we, we function until we are enlightened. We have that duality. So we th- we, something deep in us, unconscious in us, feels the medicine is doing it. Now, we have a couple things going on, we could say, in this seemingly deflationary answer, but they point to a profound optimism and encouragement. And I'll still say again that I I do have a lot of uh, positive feeling for these medicines. I'm not saying not to work with them. We're saying how can we work with them better, and part of that might be to acknowledge that at some point we need to be able to arrive at certain experiences without the medicine. Maybe, maybe not. We're at least opening up that question. And maybe we could say, maybe we could get it at it by asking, why are these two contemplations called the Buddha molecule? Or put another way, what is the Buddha molecule? On the one hand, we might think I've renamed DMT. Because Rick Strassman called, his first book was DMT, the spirit molecule. And so have I just, you know, merely spun on that? Uh, not really. So obviously that was deliberate, and I, I am riffing or playing off of, off of Rick Strassman's uh, first book. And there's a way in which it's a helpful truth, because Buddha is us. Buddhist philosophy differs from certain kinds of conventional religious views in that it makes the highest image an image of ourselves. So we are Buddha. And Buddha is enlightenment. Buddha is the dispelment or dissolution of all our ignorance and everything that arises out of that ignorance, including our fear, anger, reactivity, self-centeredness, greed, pride, clinging, craving, addiction, jealousy, along with all our manipulation, control, and doing. Buddha means someone who has stopped doing their lives and started dancing them. If we can see Jung's point of view, Carl Jung, If we can see Jung's point of view, we can say that Buddha is an archetypal image that touches every human being, and maybe also many every non-human being, because from the Buddhist philosophical standpoint, all beings are Buddhas, every single one. Earthworms are Buddhas also. But at least we human beings, any of us, can look at the image of Buddha, and we can say, you know what, I get it. That's an image of a genuinely free human being, a genuinely wise, loving, and beautiful being, beyond hope and fear. So we can look at that and say, oh, I understand what that means. It doesn't matter what, what our religion is. Now, it could seem a little sacrilegious to some of us because he appears to have characteristics some traditions associate with a deity. We just read them in the opening of that Avatamsaka Sutra, the Flower Garland Sutra, because Buddha, remember, he knows everything. He pervades all space and time. He's everywhere. And he has the capacity to create worlds, Buddha fields. So it could seem a little sacrilegious, but actually, even in conventional religions, I think we find some space for seeing the good in this image. 
For instance, if our tradition tells us that we were made in the image of the divine, do we take that as something superficial or something deep and essential? Are we made in the surface image of the divine or the deep and essential image of the divine? Another way of asking is, what do you think? Do we share the, with the divine a body that looks like the one we have? Is, is, does the divine look like a human being? Is it that we share the surface or do we share the essence? And what do we think that essence would be other than wisdom, love, and beauty? Buddha as an image says that we were made in the image of wisdom, love, and beauty and that our whole world and the whole cosmos is like that. We can know God's love only because our love is just like God's love when we liberate it when we liberate ourselves by becoming what we are, we could only love God properly with the love God put in us, which would be the love that is in God's image. So Buddha represents our very highest potential, beyond what our current patterns of thought can really imagine for us. We really can't imagine it. The Avatamsaka Sutra tries to help expand our imagination to make it a little more possible for us to imagine it. That's part of what it does. It's a very imagination-expanding text. And there's a lot of imaginative work that happens in advanced Buddhist practices. It really draws on the, our imaginative capacity. That's absolutely essential to emphasize. The creativity of the mind. And that's acknowledged in other traditions too. Uh, Henri Corbon wrote about the imaginal, and the place of the imaginal in Islamic mysticism. But at any rate, there's a mystery, a magic, a vastness that we can only realize by means of an intimate and passionate practice of our lives. Another way to put all of that is we need to ask what kind of medicine we ourselves will become. What will we bring to the world? When people get a dose of our presence, our medicine, our magic, how do they feel? And if we want our medicine to become mutually healing, mutually nourishing, mutually illuminating, and mutually liberating, we need a holistic philosophy of life, which means ethics, study, learning from teachers, daily practices, usually combined with regular retreats. And in the context of our present discussion, we need that holistic philosophy to create the context for psychedelic medicines to gift us all the wondrous treasures that we otherwise might miss because we lack such a holistic philosophy. And we definitely need to honor the good these medicines have already done because people have experienced really important healing and transformation. It was for them important. But to honor their highest goodness, the highest goodness of these medicines and the highest goodness of those who have already feel they've been helped by them. I think many of us need to try to go deeper and, and to become more realistic. When we're starving, a piece of white bread can taste divine and a sliver of lemon might cure our scurvy or at least make us feel a lot better because scurvy can make us feel awful. Our gums bleed, our old wounds open up, we feel run down and wiped out. Sound familiar? Curing that scurvy can feel wonderful, but curing scurvy doesn't make us healthy overall. 
Now, I don't know of anyone who became a great sage, Buddha-level kind of person, by means of psychedelics alone. If you know of any, ask them to come forward and offer teachings, because they should be able to teach at the level Buddha taught, if they're that kind of being. And that means we have another little nuance to the idea of the Buddha molecule here. When we take DMT, or another psychedelic medicine, did we, in fact, take the Buddha molecule? Are we Buddhas during that time? Well, let's think of the teachings Buddha offered on the basis of his insights. And maybe you don't know any of those teachings, but just consider that people from all over the larger cultural milieu, the larger ecologies of mind, during his time, people came from all over to study and learn from this guy. And then they kept passing these teachings and practices down from one generation to the next for thousands of years. And today, in our time, we put people in brain scanners to find out how those teachings work because we see that they do work. So we're verifying it by the lights of the dominant culture's science, which is not the finest kind of science we could have, but, you know, it's not a a completely ridiculous epistemology. It's just a problematic one, and it's uh, incoherent, but it's valuable in in, in certain ways. So we know these practices, these teachings that Buddha came up with, they bring healing and transformative insight and make possible things that our culture didn't know were possible. That is the dominant culture. Now, is that how the average psychedelic session goes? Do we leave those sessions with insights that become teachings that can heal, shift, and guide the whole of the dominant culture? If we can entertain the possibility that psychedelic experiences are often, as Rick Strassman put it, aesthetically rich, but relatively speaking, informationally poor, then perhaps we should find it both humbling and inspiring to recognize just how much helpful, vitalizing information Buddha manifested out of his self-induced psychedelic experiences. And by self-induced, I mean he didn't take an herb, but he unleashed possibly even greater capacities from his own mind than anyone has ever opened up with the use of conventional psychedelic medicines. Maybe not. Maybe there have been people who have done so, and especially in the old indigenous context. Those contexts have been violently disturbed by conquest consciousness. So I wouldn't even try to compare them to whatever was going on 2,600 years ago, both on uh, in South America, on Turtle Island, and also in India, in Buddha's time. What we know for sure, though, it seems, that Buddha verified that we ourselves are the medicine. In one way, shape, or form, we could say that much. He verified that we are the medicine, and then he went out to teach for decades. As we've considered, those teachings comprise thousands of pages of written texts. They include a skillful and detailed analysis of mind and experience, mind and life, along with precise practices for transforming our experience of life, and thus healing our world. It's not clear that psychedelics can can do that sort of thing, can produce that sort of effect, at least not in the absence of a holistic philosophical tradition, and that's part of it. That's, That's a really significant issue. So in that sense, DMT isn't really the Buddha molecule. 
We, ourselves, are the Buddha molecule. And this touches on the flower garland sutra, the flower ornament scripture as well, because there we see the fractal images of a Buddha in every one of the atoms of our body. Every atom has a whole world system in it, and each world system has a Buddha. So that's the Buddha molecule too. The Buddha molecules are in our body. We are the Buddha molecule, and each atom of us is the Buddha molecule. But in a way, Buddha is also subatomic, not in the sense of being a particle, but in the sense of being subparticulate altogether. Underneath all the particles, what do you get? You know, that's what puzzles our physicists. Well, what happens when you go up? What's, what's after all the particles? Buddha is the wholeness out of which all apparent particles emerge, and we are that wholeness. So the Buddha molecule is the cosmos. It's an infinite molecule. And if we couldn't see that truth, then the Buddha molecule would remain other. It would remain something outside ourselves. Now this is a nuanced issue, but the subtle ways that we treat ourselves as imperfect and incomplete have profound effects in our lives. If we can't arrive at visionary love wisdom without an external medicine, we might thereby limit ourselves in our world. It's subtle. I'm not saying for sure. I don't know all the limits here because I'm not a Buddha. But part of what's at play is the dualistic mind that we practice. And we do need some help there. In fact, that's part of what we have to recognize because of our dualistic mind. We need help. We are totally interwoven with the whole. Yes, we're the Buddha molecule, but we need teachers to help us. And we can't behave in a self-centered and prideful way in which we think we know everything all right and we're, we know what we need to do and so on and we can just study whatever we want to study and learn whatever we... and ignore anything that we don't want to study or learn. And that's what we can get away with if we're not in a tradition. When we're in some kind of lineage, there are teachers who tell us, look, you need to do this. You need to learn this practice. If you don't want to, we're not going to force you, but th then you're not going to make progress either. And we don't want that. So we want to do our own thing. We want to read the books we want to read and only the parts of them we like and all the rest. And we end up with this self-protective thing, which is based in a lot of fear and confusion, actually even self-doubt, but it can emerge as this self-assertion, a self-assertiveness, like I'm confident. I know. I know my process. I, I know my path. But we don't, or else we'd be enlightened already. So it's saying we do need help, and at the same time we need to find the inner guru, in Buddhist philosophy, we see a consistent emphasis on the inner guru, even as we may engage in the most passionate and devoted manner with an external guru, whose virtue, wisdom, compassion, and grace have made it abundantly, abundantly clear that they can skillfully guide us. We would revere such a teacher as a realization of something we ourselves fundamentally are, and such teachers seek only to help us experience this for ourselves, not to aggrandize themselves. So we're talking about experience here too, right? What are we experiencing for ourselves? Enlightenment in a certain way is not an ordinary experience. The way we're using the word right now, this um, sense of enlightenment being a not an ordinary experience, what I mean is that psychedelic experiences are ordinary even if they seem kind of extreme. And what I'm trying to get at is that enlightenment is a different kind of experience. We could call it a consummatory experience. And that word already came up in 
when D.T. Suzuki was talking about the text as being the consummation of Buddhist uh, enlightenment, Buddhist experience, Buddhist thought, Buddhist sentiment even. And a consummatory experience involves reaching the highest point, arriving at some kind of great perfection, a great connectedness, a great connection. It's like something suddenly falling into place, like a circle suddenly being completed. We could think of it as analogous to arriving at the peak of a mountain that we might have climbed for many hours or even days. We can't start at the peak and get that experience. And in fact, we can't start at the peak, period. You've got to climb a mountain to get to the peak. You don't just start at the peak. So we only get to the peak by climbing. And the experience of being at the peak is the consummation of the whole journey, including everything we experienced on the way up the mountain. Everything gets recontextualized at the peak. And we have some good stuff to recontextualize in order to make the uh, peak feel most poignant. That's often how it goes. Now, many psychedelic experiences seem like it enhanced experience compared to our habitual kind of experience, but they require a rich context, a rich ecology of practice in order to become increasingly consummatory. A holistic philosophy of life helps create that enriched context that would make those experiences more consummatory. And the training that a philosophy offers allows us to gather more information from these, to receive more information. I don't mean to approach them in a taking manner. I just mean that they don't simply overwhelm us and become aesthetically rich and informationally poor. When the mind is trained, it's both aesthetically rich and informationally rich. If we compare the wisdom Buddha brought forth on the base of his cosmically consummatory experience to the kinds of things we tend to get from even experienced psychedelic pilgrims, it does seem that we would find Buddha a more reliable guide for us in our lives. You know, if you're thinking, well, where do I go for guidance on the meaning of life and how to be a better person and, you know, how to have insight into the nature of mind and reality, should I read the writings of psychedelic pilgrims or should I read a holistic philosophy, philosophical tradition, like the Buddhist tradition, and in particular like Buddha, his teachings, or one of his uh, descendants, spiritual descendants, like, say, Thich Nhat Hanh, or Pema Chodron, or other people like that. And the suggestion here is that they, they seem to be more reliable guides. But just because we can all do better, all of us can do better. That doesn't mean the medicines themselves are no good or that wonderful healing hasn't happened with them. I'm not trying to be overly deflationary here. I find a lot of potential in these medicines. I also understand that people are going to use them. But maybe their greatest potential will always be that they wipe away some of our doubts about the magic and mystery of the world and our own mind. And they make us curious enough to seek training on how we could arrive at transformative and healing insights even without those medicines. In the end, we may need to remember some of the stories and images we've considered together, including the image of Anuruddha, who enjoyed all kinds of psychic trips, (laughs) psychic powers, psychic trips. But in the end, he had to be told to move past all that and to turn toward the deathless. I'd love to read more from the Flower Garland Sutra. 
uh, because it's so remarkable. But instead, let's acknowledge we've come a long way. And uh, I, we need to think through a lot more. And forgive me if I've left out anything you find important. This is really actually a sensitive topic. And I, I, I want to acknowledge that. We've tried to deal with it, you know, cl- with clarity. But there's, there's a lot of sensitivity. And people are suffering and trying to use these me- medicines for healing. Sometimes it creates more suffering for them. But uh, I will recommend maybe one more time, just one more time, that you peek at the Flower Garland Sutra at some point if you can. And I'll read just a few lines from the translator's introduction to the main English translation we have. It's Thomas Cleary. And Cleary writes, quote, It is interesting to observe how much apparently disconnected activity can be brought into coherent focus through the vision of the flower ornament scripture. There are untold, incipient, enlightening beings, always becoming manifest in every thought, word, and deed of compassion. It is the task of the more fully developed enlightening beings in every community to contact and nurture what is best in others, whether they do it through religion or art or cooperation in ordinary activities, is purely a matter of local expediency. Often it is the case that preoccupation with the external face of such activity obscures its inner purpose. Over a period of time, this leads to elaboration of forms without their original meaning, fragmentation of the work, and mutual misunderstanding and even intolerance and hostility among members of what have now become factions. One of the functions of the flower ornament scripture is to present a vision of the whole underlying the parts so as to help people offset the effects of this scattering tendency and rise above sectarianism and other forms of bigotry. That's an important passage because he's saying, in other words, that this text cultivates inclusiveness in us and an appreciation of each other and the world we share, and a sense of a common ground of sacredness and mystery, a common ground of wisdom, love, and beauty that we share and that we can work together in cooperatively. Okay, well, we will engage in at least one more contemplation on psychedelics to talk about what I see as essential practices to maximize the benefits and minimize the risks of working with these medicines. We won't call it a philosopher's toolbox because that's a terrible metaphor. Or I don't know why people use the toolbox metaphor. We just rejected homo faber. So we're not going to look at it that way, but we're going to look at it as a philosopher's kind of guide to working with the medicine of the world. It's like a field guide. field guide that tells you, well, this is how you build a fire, and this is the plant they eat, and this is what, how you do it, and so on. We're going to try to do that. How do we track wisdom, love, and beauty in the forest of the soul? Until then, if you have any questions about this contemplation and the general topic of wisdom, love, and psychedelics, please get in touch through dangerouswisdom.org. We might be able to bring some of your questions, reflections, and stories into a future contemplation. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.